if we look around scripture for descriptions of what the earth looks like, we can run into some strange and confusing terms pretty quickly, like the firmament, the pillars of the earth, the storehouses of wind, hail, and thunder, the highest heavens. As the world is created, we hear in Genesis 1 that God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. In some Bibles, this dome word is translated as firmament, and God calls this dome or firmament the sky. See, the ancient Israelites thought that there was a watery chaos, what they called Tehom, and that it contained sea monsters who were enemies of God. Psalm 74 and other places tell us that in the work of creation, God conquered the monsters before separating the primal waters above and below the earth. If you want to check it, that was Psalm 74. I promise it's in there. We don't talk about it a lot. So anyhow, the earth was believed to be on pillars. Elsewhere in the Bible, this is called the foundation of the earth over the watery deep. They believed that the earth was flat and expanse with mountains and other features. Beneath the earth was the underworld. Above the earth was heaven, where God lived with the heavenly host, also supported by pillars. And above that was even more watery chaos. This dome that separated the waters from the sky was likely thought to be made of metal. But in Exodus 24, the floor of God's throne room is said to be made out of sapphire, which explains why they thought the sky was blue. It was a reflection of that floor of God's throne room. God's heaven was thought to be a specific chamber that rested on top of the dome of the sky. In short, lacking the scientific resources that we have today, they saw a three-story world heaven above, earth in the middle, and hell below. The picture on the cover of your bulletin comes from this worldview, if you were wondering what this little wood engraving is. It was originally made sometime in the Middle Ages, and it depicts a traveler that has traveled so long and so far that he literally reached the end of the earth. And he found the dome where the firmament is, and out of curiosity, he stuck his head out to look and see the other side. Now, careful study of the Bible in comparison with modern understandings has raised dramatically different responses and many heated debates. One 20th century theologian, Rudolf Bultmann, he's a German guy, uh, was so concerned that the Bible be, his term was demythologized, that he said, man's knowledge and mastery of the world have advanced to such an extent through science and technology that it is no longer possible for anyone seriously to hold the New Testament view of the world. In fact, no one does. What meaning, for instance, can we attach to such phrases in the creed as descended into hell or ascended into heaven? We no longer believe, he said, in the three-storied universe which the creeds take for granted. And he goes on to say, no one who is old enough to think for himself supposes that God lives in a local heaven. There is no longer any heaven in the traditional sense of the word. And if this is so, the story of Christ's descent into hell and his ascension into heaven is done with. When I hear or read a quote like that, well, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty taken aback. 
I sometimes call this line of reasoning A, B, C, xylophone. Like, it's easy to follow and agree with the first through premises. Sure, we understand the cosmos differently than they did. Sure, we don't see God as hiding behind a cloud, you know, just over my head. But then all of a sudden, wham, they're saying that, well, perhaps there's no heaven and that Christ's ascension is meaningless and irrelevant. I have a problem with that. Maybe, maybe you do too. Sometimes we find ourselves at an impasse. And the world is not what we thought that it was. Something happens, something changes, and we can't even be sure of the ground beneath our feet anymore. And then the question comes, well, where do we go from here? We've talked a lot this Eastertide about the utter utter confusion, the consternation and chaos that the disciples were facing when Jesus was killed and raised again. After fearing that they had lost their great teacher and friend forever, he was resurrected and he appeared to them many times. Jesus showed up in their lives and he kept on teaching them, kept on leading them in the way that they should go. That must have been such a relief to them because, you know, with Peter's betrayal and the scattering of disciples going back to their old jobs, their old lives, they weren't doing very well with this newly forming church of Jesus Christ. When Jesus returned, they must have heaved a sigh of relief thinking, thank God he's back. He'll do all the leading and we can just keep following him and doing what he says all day, every day. They didn't want to be in charge. I I think this is what was happening here. But in the Gospel of John, when Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, that's the first resurrection appearance in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. Jesus makes it clear things are different now. It's in your hands. This realization does not seem to be something that the disciples were at all prepared for. They didn't want their world to change again. They wanted Jesus to keep showing up as he had always done. And what would this new world look like? In the passage from Zechariah, the people faced a similar level of chaos. After being conquered by the Babylonians in 586 BC, the people of Israel were exiled to Babylon. The conquerors took the skilled workers and the political leaders, the the very best and brightest of the people, and they left behind only a few, mostly poor and weak. The Babylonians' notion of conquest was to break the people down so that they no longer had their own identity and so they could be totally consumed by the empire. But in 539, the Persians conquered the Babylonians. King Cyrus of Persia decreed that the people could return to their homeland and there arose strong leaders to take the people home to rebuild what they had lost. At the height of King Darius's first rule, that was the Persian ruler at the time of this passage, the Persian Empire controlled the largest fraction of the world's population of any empire in history ever. 
That is, Darius ruled more than about 50 million people, which was 44% of the world's population. They were big business in those days. Now, in contrast to the Babylonians, the Persians had a very different approach to ruling an empire. They didn't try to destroy their subjects' culture. They didn't leech away their best and brightest. Their only requirement for subject peoples was that they could come and request soldiers when the empire went to battle. Really, they supported the culture of their people because they wanted positive and smooth relationships instead of having to deal with rebellions all the time. They ordered that the holy objects that the Babylonians had looted from the temple be returned to the people of Israel. They even gave financial support and supplies for the rebuilding of the temple and uh, the rebuilding of Jerusalem and even a wall for the city. Because of their support and their ability to come home and rebuild, the Persian victory was seen by the people as a blessing from God. But... Rebuilding is slow. It takes a long time to figure out what to do, to rally support, to rally the energy and the hope to make something new. The prophet Zechariah was likely a child when he came back from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem, and it's thought that he might have been from a priestly family, and that when he started prophesying, he might have only been 16. The people were struggling to imagine that things could be good again, that they really could build what God had promised them, a future, a hope, a life together. The prophecy from Zechariah that we heard this morning is often thought to be a messianic prophecy, and it's one of my favorites. I like the detail of God dwelling in the midst of the people, of old men and old women sitting in the street, of boys and girls playing without fear. The crowd that Zechariah preached to probably didn't include very many old or young people. After all, they had needed the most able-bodied, the most energetic to build something that the rest of the people could survive in. So what better vision of a blessed future than one in which the elderly can be at rest? The people's needs are so well met that children don't need to work all the time that they can run and play in the streets. And next to the slow-going chaos of trying to rebuild, this vision of peace and prosperity must have seemed impossible to the remnant of the people, but nothing is impossible with God. Do we throw away everything that we believed in because things have gone horribly awry? Or can everything be lifted up? When the Romans came, they demanded tribute money from their subjects, and they withheld access to the temple when they wanted to control and manipulate the people. Reflecting on the chaos that the people had known, they remembered prophecies of the Davidic kingdom, promises of the Messiah, the restoration of the land. The disciples had lost their world again, and they wanted Jesus to tell them, what do we do in this broken world? Jesus tells them that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, a moment that we'll celebrate in two weeks with Pentecost. 
Jesus says that with this power, they will become witnesses to the ends of the earth, and then he is lifted up. And all they can do is look up. Some men, presumably angels, tell them that Jesus will return, but in the meantime, even though everything is different, even though he's not right there next to them, he ascended into heaven. And it's, it's not about being 50 feet in the air versus standing right next to you. We know that. This Jesus who was there with them is now in heaven. And because he is in heaven, he is with everyone. Just like the prophecy at the end of our Zechariah passage, people can come from many nations yearning to go and worship the Lord. The world did not end when Jesus was up seemingly out of reach. The world got a savior who was within everyone's reach. Because he is lifted up on the cross, from the tomb, from the earth, we are all empowered to build the kingdom of heaven on earth. And we have all the tools and supplies and support that we need. The powers of this world do not overcome the one whose sacrifice undoes the forces of evil. We can serve our Lord and King, trusting that the day of the Lord is coming when all shall be restored. And so let us rejoice in that bright and beautiful day. Amen.